I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. guest is Steve Taylor. He's a writer and senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the chair of the transpersonal psychology section of the British Psychology Society. He blogs for Scientific American and Psychology Today and his articles and essays have been published in over a hundred academic journals, magazines, and newspapers. And he's the author of numerous best-selling books, most recently Extraordinary Awakenings, When Trauma Leads to Transformation. Steve, welcome. Hi, Tonio. Nice to be with you. You've been researching and writing about spiritual awakening for many years, and you say that transformation through turmoil is the most remarkable phenomenon you've ever seen. To begin with, explain what you mean by transformation through turmoil and what you find so remarkable about it, and also differentiate it from post-traumatic growth. Transformation through turmoil is a sudden shift into spiritual awakening, which some people undergo in the midst of intense psychological turmoil. So it sometimes happens after a bereavement. It sometimes happens after a diagnosis of cancer. It happens to prisoners even soldiers 
in in any intensely traumatic situation or, or after any long period of suffering or loss and it's almost an identity shift people sometimes describe themselves as feeling like they're a different person living in the same body sometimes they look in the mirror shortly after the awakening and they don't recognize themselves because they feel so different and their lives change radically afterwards they often change careers sometimes their relationships change but most of all their attitude to life changes and their outlook on the world changes to a much more spiritual, uh, much more connective way of being. And it's similar to post-traumatic growth, but post-traumatic growth is usually a very gradual phenomenon. It usually takes place over a number of years, even decades, and it's usually less dramatic than transformation through turmoil. Post-traumatic growth is quite incremental and the changes uh, they can be very significant, but, you know, it's not a question of a person changing identity. It's a question of a person changing their attitude to life. So transformation through turmoil is simply more dramatic and more deep-rooted than post-traumatic growth. And in this book, you wrote about people who had essentially permanent identity shifts, not just temporary awakenings. No, it, it was permanent. I spoke to some people who, you know, that they underwent the identity shift 30, 40 years ago, but it had remained permanent since then. Sometimes people say that initially it's incredibly intense. They have this incredibly bright and vivid perception of the world, this really powerful feeling of, of exhilaration and almost mystical perception of things. So sometimes it de-intensifies a little bit after a, a few weeks but it usually remains constant at a slightly lower level. So it's almost like a rebirth, you know, people talk about in terms of being reborn. And once you're born, you can't disappear again, you know, until you die. You can't sort of unbear yourself. So once this new identity has emerged, then it usually stays. So how does this compare to traditional experiences and ideas of quote-unquote enlightenment union or liberation i think it's essentially the same there was one guy i interviewed he underwent a sudden shift after a long period of stress due to work and relationship problems and sort of childhood trauma which re-emerged and he underwent a shift into a spiritual awakening quite suddenly but he didn't understand what had happened to him because he didn't have a background in spirituality in fact he was a, a scientist so he'd been conditioned that spirituality was nonsense. You know, he associated spirituality with religious fundamentalism. So when he had this awakening, he had no idea how to comprehend it. But it gradually, he began to learn about mindfulness and about Buddhism. So he thought, oh, maybe something like that's happened to me. Maybe I'm experiencing a kind of permanent mindful state. But he ended up going to a Buddhist monastery just to kind of investigate Buddhism in more detail. And when he spoke to the teacher, the Buddhist teacher, the Buddhist teacher said, ah, I wouldn't talk too loudly about this because all of the monks in here are trying to find what you've already got. And I think essentially that's true. I think the state that these people experience is similar, if not the same, to enlightenment. That's why I call it wakefulness. The most accurate translation of body, which is a Buddhist term, which is usually translated as enlightenment, but it should be more accurately translated as wakefulness. So I use that term wakefulness to describe the experiences of the people in my book. And it's interesting that I think most of the people in the book didn't have any prior context for this type of quote-unquote spiritual awakening. 
No, apart from, you know, I think there were a, a couple of cases. And when people do have a background in spirituality, it's easier because they have a framework to make sense of what has happened to them. But for a lot of people who don't have that background, they are initially quite confused by what's happened, even though they feel so connected and so appreciative of their lives. And even though they have this marvelously vivid perception of things, it can be overlaid with a sense of confusion. And over time, that confusion can grow. And they may even think that they've gone crazy. In fact, there was one guy I interviewed who he was so confused by what had happened that he found a book of a textbook of psychiatric disorders. And he started to look through the book, trying to find this disorder, his own disorder. But he couldn't. Luckily, he didn't find it. And then he realized, well, maybe uh, maybe I've not gone crazy. Maybe something more positive has happened to me. So, yeah, it, it can be quite confusing because people don't have a background in in spirituality. Yeah, that, that seems so ironic to me that somebody who's had this type of awakening and is experiencing this depth of connection could be disoriented by, but on the other hand, it, it from personal experience, I can, well, some degree of personal experience, I can relate to that sense of disorientation between clashing worldviews inside of us. That's right. I mean, another factor is that when awakenings are very sudden, they can be explosive and they can have a disturbing effect, a kind of destabilizing effect. They can bring some psychological disturbances. They can cause problems with memory, problems with concentration, problems with functioning in the everyday world, with maintaining relationships. And some people may confuse those disturbances with psychosis. So it does unfortunately happen quite frequently that people who undergo spiritual awakening are labeled as uh, psychotic. Sometimes they're given medication. Sometimes they're even sectioned or committed. But usually they have a deep inner knowing that they are going through positive transformation. So they try to, you know, I've, I've heard cases of people who, you know, taught themselves out of being committed or just don't take the medication because they have an inner knowing that they're going through a different process. Yeah, it's a fascinating phenomenon, especially when, when it is sudden and people go through that type of inner interpersonal conflict, inside, kind of a, like a battle between the old identity and the new identity. That's right. And also, it can be a struggle between a socially conditioned worldview and the new worldview, which has emerged with the awakening. Because if you are from a, a secular materialist background, then the experiences you're having as an awakened person don't make sense. They, they contravene the worldview which you've absorbed from your culture. So that can be a problem too. In, in some cases, people may repress the awakening because it's so foreign to them, so unacceptable to their worldview. But they can, they can only do that for a certain amount of time. It, you, it always comes back. You, know, you can repress it initially, but at some point it will always reemerge. Because as I said before, you know, once something has been born, it can't be unborn. So how common do you think this kind of spiritual awakening is? It's difficult to say. Post-traumatic growth is very common. Research has found that almost 50% of people undergo post-traumatic growth after any type of trauma in the long term. But transformation through turmoil is obviously much less common than that. I mean, all human beings go through intense trauma and turmoil at some point in their lives, but very few people undergo this sudden and dramatic spiritual awakening. I, I would guess, based on my research, that it's probably something like one in a hundred, maybe even less, 
So it is, it is quite an uncommon phenomenon. I mean, spiritual awakening probably happens most commonly in a very gradual fashion through long periods of following spiritual practices and paths. So that's probably the most common way in which awakening occurs. But, you know, after that, I would say that the most common way is through sudden and dramatic awakening through turmoil. So when you say one out of 100, you mean one out of 100 people who have this kind of permanent spiritual awakening will experience it suddenly in this sort of way? I mean that one out of 100 people who go through intense turmoil will experience this awakening. Okay, that clears that up. So this book is full of a wide variety of extraordinary stories of relatively ordinary people who've experienced this sudden spiritual awakening through suffering and turmoil. And you say that suffering and turmoil have what you call a high degree of spiritual potential. That's right. I suggest that every activity or situation that we experience has a certain degree of spiritual potential, whether it's a low amount or a high amount. For example, shopping or watching television have a low amount of spiritual potential. Or maybe not. Maybe people have had spiritual experiences while shopping, but I don't think it's very common. (laughs) But things like contact with nature has a lot of spiritual potential. Taking psychedelic drugs has a lot of spiritual potential. They're quite, you know, well-known sources of spiritual experiences. And amongst the different types of trauma that human beings can experience, well, I think, I mean, trauma in general has a lot of spiritual potential, but amongst the different types of trauma, certain types of trauma have more spiritual potential than others. For example, bereavement has shown up in my research as one of the main sources of spiritual awakening, probably because it's such a common human experience and it has a lot of power to disrupt our normal worldview and to change our perspective on reality. So when you say bereavement, you mean like the loss of a loved one in one's life. Exactly. And the grief that follows. Yeah, that's right. About three years ago, I I did a a psychological study of 16 people who had experienced spiritual awakening in the aftermath of bereavement. And, you know, there were some amazing stories, even, you know, in incredibly tragic deaths, violent deaths such as murder. You know, even the death of children was associated with spiritual awakening. And in some ways, the more tragic and the more violent the death was, the more spiritual potential it seemed to have. And in the book, you give examples of a wide variety of particularly traumatic circumstances that people go through, including incarceration, where people find themselves stuck in a situation that they have no control over and have no escape from, which kind of leads people to a forced sense of acceptance and surrender. That's right. Yeah. In fact, generally, an attitude of acceptance or a predicament where you had no option but to switch into a mode of acceptance, that was one of the main triggers of transformation. A lot of people could identify a certain moment when they let go of resistance to their situation or when they switched into a mode of acceptance. And that was usually when the transformation occurred. And yeah, I mean, prison incarceration in general is quite strongly associated with these experiences. I did a lot of research on inmates of the Soviet gulags, also inmates of concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And there were quite a lot of cases of spiritual awakening in really desperate, terrible circumstances. 
It often happened when people were so broken down that they felt they were close to death. You know, for example, the, there could be an inmate of the Soviet gulags who was suffering, you know, terribly cold, minus 30 degrees, freezing temperatures, incredibly poor diet, brutality from the prison guards and so forth. But when they were close to death, some people described how a strange soul force would take them over. There was this kind of inner radiance, this strange, rich inner energy, which emerged inside them and kept them alive in spite of the cold and the hunger. And it seemed to imbue their surroundings with a, a strange beauty so that, you know, even in the brutality and ugliness of that environment, they could find incredible beauty. And, you know, I think in general, when we're in desperate circumstances, we find these deep reserves of resilience inside us. In fact, the more desperate the circumstances, the deeper the resilience seems to be. So, you know, it's been quite inspiring to find these cases. It's given me personally, you know, a more optimistic attitude and a faith in the resilience of the human spirit. So I think many of us have had temporary experiences of that. What can we learn from this to help us make this experience more permanent? Fortunately, we don't all have to go through suffering to undergo spiritual awakening. That's important to point out. There's no need for you to voluntarily inflict suffering on yourself, <laughs> um, which some people, you know, have done. Yeah. Sort of Christian ascetics who would inflict pain on themselves were trying that method. But fortunately, we don't have to do that because there, there are certain things we can learn from the experiences of these people. And um, one is that it's very important to live a life of detachment. And by that, I don't mean living a life of indifference and passivity. Attachment and detachment are really important because I suggest that the main reason why people undergo transformation in these circumstances is because they're forced into a mode of detachment. They have to let go of all of the things which sustain their identity, all of the things which gave them a sense of identity and well-being. For example, they have to let go of their identity in society. They have to let go of their status, their success. They have to let go of their future ambitions, their sense of achievements, their beliefs, their knowledge, their possessions, everything. All of these attachments dissolve away. For example, that happens when a person's in prison. You know, they're forced into a state of detachment because they have to let go of everything which gave them a sense of identity outside the prison. The same with addicts who go through years of addiction and slowly break down their identity, slowly lose all of their psychological attachments. So there's a certain point when a person has no attachments left and their identity seems to dissolve away because their identity consisted of these attachments which are no longer there. So their ego just collapses like a building when the bricks are taken away. And that's when the transformation occurs. And when the old self breaks down, a new self emerges inside them like a phoenix rising from the ashes. So that process of detachment is really important. And we can we can definitely follow that process in our lives by making a conscious effort not to be attached to external things and to root ourselves in a self-sufficient inner happiness. And also acceptance. As I said before, one of the main triggers of this transformation was a switch into a mode of acceptance. That acceptance seems to have an alchemical power which can transform us. So it's very important to live in a mode of acceptance too. So to begin with, cultivating a sense of detachment from these, what could be considered false senses of identity. And it's really interesting when thinking about it that way, 
what that says about who we really are underneath all of that. Exactly. We all create a, a false identity and it's conditioned, you know, by our societies and by our, our upbringings. I, I think, you know, if you go back to childhood, one of the great things about childhood is that children don't have attachments. They're not attached to the future. They're not attached to ideas of possessions or wealth. They're not attached to achievements. But slowly, as we turn into adults, we start to collect attachments. We start to collect an identity as a member of a certain ethnic group or a certain religion. And we collect ambitions for the future, roles in society, in our careers or as a family member, as a husband or wife, etc. So we collect all of these attachments, beliefs as well. We, we collect political beliefs, religious beliefs. They're all attachments. And these are all just the building blocks of our identity, the bricks in the wall, you know, that constitute who we are. And that can give us a sense of strength. You know, we feel like we are important people, significant people. We feel as though we can, you know, we can kind of withstand the pressures of life because we have this strong identity. Um, so psychologically, it can be quite useful. But the problem is that it, you know, as you suggested, it, it obscures our real nature. It separates us from our real nature. It becomes literally a wall between us and our true spiritual nature. I think some people become aware of that in when they're middle-aged. You, know, you get some people who become quite successful. They do well in their careers. They have families and they live in nice houses with a nice car and so on. But when they get to middle age, they have a midlife crisis where they become aware of this deep frustration inside them, this deep unhappiness. And I think it's often a feeling of disconnection from their true selves. Their true selves are calling them inside and they're feeling this pain because they feel this separation, this disconnection. And that's all about attachments. They've just collected too many attachments which have obscured their true nature. So sometimes it can be helpful for some adversity, some trauma even, to come along and, and break down some of those attachments. So this new identity that you speak of isn't really necessarily a new identity. No, it appears that way, and sometimes it may be. But you could also think of it as a return to a fundamental identity, which was always there, but which we lost contact with. You could say that it's a reconnection with our essence. Mm -hmm. And I recently read a wonderful description of the experience of that where they said that that inner essence, that essential self, is actually very quiet and it's very difficult to hear and recognize with all the noise that's going on at these more superficial levels. That's right. Yeah. I think that's one of the issues with modern life. There are so many distractions and there's so much activity. There are so many ways of entertaining yourself that we're encouraged to keep our attention focused outside ourselves all the time. And that's another way in which we lose ourselves. So, you know, it's great to, to have periods of quietness and solitude when you can turn off the internet and just withdraw into it, retreat into yourself and reattune to your, your subtle essence. And actually practice that, make it make an actual um, regular practice of doing that and cultivating that quiet space. Yeah, that's what meditation is. Meditation is an opportunity to reattune to yourself, to withdraw from the world and reattune to your deepest nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a counter practice to our culture. 
Yeah. And that's why some people find meditation very difficult. You know, I'm, I'm often surprised when people say, oh, I've tried meditation, but I just can't do it. But, you know, for a lot of people, that is the case. They say, oh, my mind's just too busy. It actually made me feel worse because I became aware of the busyness of my mind and my mind seemed to get even busier than normal. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes recommend to people that they should simply practice meditative activities like walking in nature, swimming, running. And they, they can be, you know, those activities can be meditative because they're also, you know, if you're out in the countryside, the beauty and the vividness of the natural world has a, a mind quieting effect, just like meditation. And the stillness of the surroundings makes you still as well. It's another way of attuning to your deepest nature. Mm-hmm. One of the people that you wrote about in the book, this guy named David, who had a near-death experience, interesting related to this notion of false identity and new identity. Talk about his response when you asked him if what he experienced could have been a hallucination. He was adamant that that wasn't the case. And I think this is true for everybody who has a near-death experience, that almost everybody goes through a very deep transformation. You know, even though a near-death experience may last for just a few seconds in real time, it can change a person dramatically for the rest of their life. You know, it can just shift them into a completely new way of being. And that happened to David after his near-death experience. His outlook on the world was completely changed. He'd always been quite a kind of depressive person who felt frustrated and inadequate. But those feelings just left him and never came back. He was just filled with this sense of well-being and gratitude for life. And he became creative in a way he'd never been before. He started to paint because he wanted to convey the visions he'd seen during his near-death experience. So he started to paint these really beautiful canvases full of light and full of strange beings. And also he started to compose music. He started to compose classical music as another way of trying to convey the feelings he'd had during his near-death experience. He experienced such an intense sense of euphoria, such a feeling of oneness, such a feeling of universal love and bliss that he felt the best way to convey it was through music. And you can listen to his music online, you can see his pictures online, and they do convey a real sense of harmony and beauty, a kind of otherworldly harmony and beauty. So, yeah, when an experience has such a powerful, long-lasting transformational effect, it can't be a hallucination. Hallucinations do not have that kind of effect. They're usually quickly forgotten. So that's what David said, and that was one reason why he was convinced that it was a real experience. Yeah, there's still a lot of controversy within the scientific community around near-death experiences and that attempt to invalidate experiences that they themselves haven't had or are unable to understand. That's true. I mean, there are so many different theories of near-death experiences, and all of them are nonsense. If you look into them in detail, none of them, you know, hold water at all. I mean, I'm I'm aware of at least 15 different theories of near-death experiences from materialist scientists, and they, they all conflict with each other. There are always big loopholes in them. And I think that in itself tells the story that they can't explain these experiences. The attempts seem to get more and more desperate, just like a schoolboy who you know, is trying to explain to his teacher why he's not doing his homework. He invents more and more ridiculous excuses 
And it's a bit like that. There are so many different theories and they become more, more outlandish until you get to a point where, you know, you have to just give up and say, this is a real experience. It can't be explained as a hallucination, as self-delusion, as depersonalization. You know, you have to sort of surrender and accept the truth of it. There's a fellow named Parker, and after his transformation, he was able to just turn his ego mind on and off like a switch, which I found to be a fascinating way of describing one's relationship with one's ego mind. That's interesting because some spiritually minded people think in terms of transcending the ego or even destroying the ego. They think of the ego as an enemy who has to be destroyed if you become awakened. But I think Parker's case illustrates that that's not really the point. The ego is necessary. You know, we, we have to function in the world. We have to make decisions. We have to make plans. We have to think abstractly sometimes. That's a necessary requirement of life. So you need an ego for that. You know, the ego is the thinking I inside your consciousness. But the point is that, you know, if you don't need the ego, then you can just let it be dormant. That's what Parker was saying, that, you know, he needed an ego to do his job and he needed it to make, you know, decisions to think abstractly. But if it's not necessary, the ego can quietly go to sleep and you can just live in a world of experience. Then you can tune back into your wakefulness. So I think that's the best way to be, not, not to destroy the ego, but to tame the ego and make it your friend or even your servant. Yes, exactly. And there are also examples in the book of people who are addicted to drugs and in the pit of despair one day and then completely change the next day with absolutely no lingering hint of addiction so that these sudden spiritual awakenings can also have physiological effects upon our bodies and our nervous systems. That's true. In fact, that was one of the strangest findings in my research was that, you know, it was quite common. I found several cases of addicts who'd had a severe addiction for many years and they'd reached a point where they were completely broken down. They were ready to die. In some cases, they attempted suicide. And then very mysteriously, their addiction would seem to disappear. You know, typically it would happen overnight. They'd wake up in the morning and think, oh, wow, what's happened to me? I feel different. I don't have the urge to take drugs anymore. You know, the urge to take drugs would repel them, would repulse them. And as I say, it's, it's such a strange phenomenon, but it's not uncommon. And some people felt guilty about it in a way because they started to go to AA meetings. And most people who go to AA meetings talk about how difficult it is to stay sober. It's a day-to-day -day struggle. But these people, they didn't have any problems at all because somehow they'd become free of craving. And I think the only way to explain that is to think in terms of a completely new identity. So it wasn't so much that these people overcame their addiction. It was simply that the person who was addicted was no longer present. The person who was addicted had dissolved away and they were now a new identity who didn't carry any addictions. So I think that is what happened. And that also applied to people who who experienced a strange phenomenon where illnesses would suddenly disappear. For example, one person had a digestive complaint for many years, which had a big effect on his life. But after his awakening, it just suddenly disappeared. Another person had chronic back problems, which also suddenly disappeared. And I think, again, 
the only real way of explaining that is in terms of a new identity, because some illnesses are clearly psychosomatic, are caused by the influences of the mind over the body. So when a person's new identity arises, they have a different kind of mind. And without the old kind of mind, those illnesses just disappear. And that actually applies to illnesses that have manifested physiologically. That's right, yeah. I just recently wrote an article about the placebo and the nocebo effects. And I don't think the real importance of the placebo and the nocebo effects have been realized by a lot of scientists. Because what they suggest is that the mind is somehow more fundamental than the body. Because the mind has this incredibly powerful influence over the body to the point where diseases can be created or alleviated by mental intentions. Symptoms of diseases can be overcome or produced by thoughts. So if the mind was just a shadow of the brain, which most scientists think it is, then that wouldn't happen because a shadow cannot influence the object it's a shadow of. It just can't happen. So what it suggests is that the mind is more fundamental than the body and that the mind has a, a powerful influence over the body. And I think to an extent, the experiences of the people in my book bear that out, you know, because that's the only way of explaining how awakenings can have a, such a powerful physiological effect because the new consciousness or mind which is arising, you know, it sort of wipes the, the body free of illnesses uh, in quite a remarkable way. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're well aware of some of the stories of people with multiple personality disorders where when they switch from one identity to another, sometimes they have major physiological changes occur as well. Yeah, that's a, it's a good example of the same phenomenon. Because in a different personality, you have different mental functioning, different mental intentions, different thoughts, and those thoughts create different conditions. You know, I think your physiological functioning is a reflection of your mental functioning. So, you know, if you switch to a different mode of mental functioning, then you have a different mode of physiological functioning. And essentially, they're completely different people, just sort of time sharing their bodies. That's right. Yeah. And in a way, that's quite similar to what happened to the people in my book, because they feel that they are different people inhabiting the same body. I guess the only difference is that they never switch back to their previous personality. Their new personality takes over and becomes their identity for the rest of their lives. It's as if they shift into a mode of higher functioning. You know, they still, you know, life always involves challenges and crises but they find it much easier to negotiate the challenges of life because they have this fundamental sense of well-being and a, a fundamental sense of connection to other people and to the world itself. So life becomes a lot easier and they function in a much higher way, in a much more spiritual way. So I'm wondering if you could share a story of someone whose experience encompasses the essence of this transformation through turmoil. Yeah, there's a number I could share, actually, but maybe a good example is a Scottish woman called Eve. Oh, I'm glad you chose that one. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of the most remarkable and moving stories in the book because she was an alcoholic for 29 years, a severe alcoholic. And by the end of those 29 years, she was completely broken down emotionally and physically. She was homeless. She was shoplifting to keep herself supplied with drink. Uh, sleeping on the streets, 
She'd lost contact with her family. Her friends had washed their hands on her because she was so untrustworthy and she would steal their money. So she was alone uh, living on the streets and she'd reached a point in her alcoholism where if she didn't drink for more than half an hour or 45 minutes, she'd get the shakes. She'd see hallucinations. She'd feel terrible. So she had to drink just to function. She wasn't getting any kind of high anymore. She was just drinking to try to ward off these terrible symptoms of withdrawal. And she couldn't see any hope. She couldn't see any way of stopping drinking. She tried, but never been able to. And so she decided to commit suicide. And she was living in Edinburgh in Scotland. And she knew that there was a coach which went from Edinburgh to Glasgow at a certain time of the day. So she waited by the side of the road. And as soon as she saw the coach, she jumped out in front of it to try to kill herself. But fortunately, the driver swerved. So she survived. And a policeman came and she thought she was going to be arrested. But the policeman wanted to help her and said, you know, what's happened to you? How have you ended up like this? You know, where can I take you? Can I take you somewhere? So the policeman took her back to her family house to her mother. And her mother assumed that she had to give her a drink because she was an alcoholic. So she gave her a glass of wine. But Eve couldn't drink the wine. She picked the glass up, but put it down again straight away. She put it up and put it down again straight away. She had no idea why. She said it was such a strange phenomenon. that This force seemed to just put the glass down again. And then the doctor came and gave her some sedatives to deal with the withdrawal symptoms. And when she regained consciousness, she looked at herself in the mirror and didn't recognize herself. She had no idea who it was looking back at her. And again, it was an incredibly strange phenomenon. And then she realized that the craving for alcohol had just left her. And she said it was really strange because for 29 years, she'd thought of nothing else about the next drink. It was a constant thought in her mind. But now it had just gone. And she felt different. She felt this new sense of connection and this new sense of the vividness of things. The world seemed more real. Nature seemed more beautiful. She felt this new sense of love and compassion for other people. And she didn't really understand what had happened to her. She didn't have a background in spirituality. But she started to go to AA meetings. And one person at AA said to her, oh, you must have had a spiritual awakening. You're talking like a spiritually awakened person. And then she started to realize that she had undergone this transformation, which people in AA sometimes talk about. And she realized that you know she was free of the addiction and she was embarking on a new phase of her life. And she was also free of all the trauma that she'd carried because in 29 years of addiction, she'd been in all kinds of traumatic situations. She'd been raped numerous times. You know, men had tried to kill her. She'd been in all kinds of terrible situations, but she realized that she was free of the trauma of those situations too. So it was a really remarkable transformation, which is ongoing. You know, it's been 10 years now since she had a drink and she still feels the same. And yeah, she's an incredibly inspiring person. And a good example of how, you know, the breakdown of an identity can lead to the birth of a new identity. The dissolution of the ego can give rise to the birth of a new, higher spiritual self. So, yeah, I think that's a a good example of transformation through turmoil. And there are many spiritual teachers that have said that this kind of spiritual awakening or spiritual awakening in general is not something that you do. It's not something that you make an effort to accomplish. That's true. And it's certainly true in the cases of the people in the book, because none of them tried to become awakened. None of them were were interested in becoming awakened. You know, in nearly all cases, they didn't know anything about spiritual awakening. 
and they certainly weren't trying to accomplish it. Um, so it, it was involuntary. But at the same time, you know, I'm not wholly convinced by the argument because, you know, a lot of people feel a deep impulse for spiritual awakening, which is not egoic. It doesn't come from the ego. And it's not a conscious thing that they're trying to accomplish. It's a deep-rooted impulse inside them. So I think it's right to follow that impulse. And that impulse may take you to spiritual practices. It may lead you to spiritual paths. And I think it's fine to, you know, to follow that impulse. And if you didn't follow it, it would cause a lot of frustration. It would lead to depression. So I think only when the urge to awaken becomes egoic, when people say, you know, yeah, I'm going to become enlightened. If I'm not enlightened by the age of 30, I'm going to commit suicide. That's that kind of thing when yeah. it becomes a, a kind of goal, an egoic goal. That's when it's really, you know, counterproductive. Yeah, that's a nice way of clarifying that. So what makes one person more likely to experience this kind of transformation through turmoil than another? That's a good question because, I mean, everybody, as we said before, everybody goes through turmoil and trauma at some point in their lives, but not so many people undergo this transformation. So I think there are some reasons that can be identified. And maybe the most fundamental reason is simply readiness. Some people seem to be ready for this transformation. It's almost as if there is a higher spiritual self waiting to emerge inside them. It seems to be fully formed. You know, all the structures are in place. And it's just waiting patiently for the chance to, to see the light of day. And when the ego collapses, then it has the chance to emerge. A bit like a, you know, a chick which is waiting to hatch. It's ready. It's just getting ready for the right moment to hatch. And maybe in other people, they're just not ready. That latent higher self is not fully formed yet. Maybe it's just not established as a structure, you know, in the same way that a chick may not be ready to be hatched. So that seems to be one reason. You know, it's quite remarkable in some cases how fully formed this higher self is. It just establishes itself straight away and some people don't have any problems functioning they just naturally shift into this new state and it all goes very smoothly they adapt to it very smoothly it becomes integrated straight away and they live in this you know this higher spiritual state for the rest of their lives but i think another reason is your attitude or our attitude to the predicament that we're in if you face trauma or turmoil with an attitude of resistance or if you aren't ready to face up to it, if you divert yourself from it, then you're not likely to experience transformation. Transformation is much more likely to occur if you face a situation with, you know, your full attention, if you are prepared to fully contemplate it, to fully expose yourself to the reality of it. And most importantly, if you're willing to accept it, if you surrender to the situation, to let go of any resistance then that seems to harness the transformational potential of the situation. You also talk about people whose egos are not as solid as others, and you also use a term, transliminal mind. That's right. Just to, to give you an example, there was a man I interviewed called Kevin who underwent a similar transformation to Eve, actually. He, he was an alcoholic and underwent a transformation after many years of addiction. And he was originally a successful architect, but after his transformation, he retrained as a therapist and he started to work at a cancer hospital in the UK. And I think a lot of people know that cancer 
can have a transformational effect. It does have some spiritual potential. And my friend would always say that he knew almost straight away whether a patient would undergo transformation, whether they would undergo some post-traumatic growth or some kind of spiritual transformation. And I said, well, how do you know? And he said, well, it's about whether they have a controlling ego or not. You know, if people are more relaxed, more easygoing and less in control of their own lives, they're more likely to have a transformation. So he said that often people who are in kind of top professions, people who were lawyers, head teachers, engineers and so forth, they would be less likely to undergo transformation because of their controlling egos. Whereas other people would have a you know, a less rigid, a softer kind of ego, which is more open to experiences. So it's a question of, you know, being open. If you have a soft, fluid ego, which doesn't have strong boundaries, then you're more open to transformational experiences. And in general, you're more open to creativity, to spirituality, even to psychic experiences. And in this case, you're more open to the transformational potential of trauma and turmoil. You also have a four-step process to harnessing suffering or turmoil for transformation. We've probably talked about some aspects of that. That's right. It begins with acknowledgement, which we mentioned already. So that's simply uh, facing up to the reality of your predicament. I think obviously when we face difficult circumstances, we often feel what I call the avoidance impulse, the impulse not to contemplate the situation, the impulse to divert ourselves from the reality of the situation, which is natural. That's completely understandable. But it means that, you know, we won't experience any degree of growth or transformation from the experience. But if we, you know, if we squarely face the reality of it, that's the beginning. That's the entrance point, if you like, into the transformational process. The second stage is facing up to the turmoil which the predicament is causing. So let's take the example of being diagnosed with cancer. If you're diagnosed with cancer, it's very likely that you'll feel some anxiety, some fear, some bitterness and other negative emotions. So it's important to just acknowledge those emotions. Don't feel ashamed of them. They're completely natural. Just accept them as real and, you know, just be prepared to allow them to manifest themselves. And the third stage is self-exploration. And that means going into ourselves, into our own being and exploring the emotions and the thoughts we're experiencing. And a lot of people find this quite difficult, actually. A lot of human beings are not really prepared to go inside themselves, partly because we live such busy lives with our attention focused on the external world. We have so many entertainments and distractions in our lives that we're not used to going inside ourselves. But going inside yourself is a necessary prerequisite but transformation. What normally happens when you go inside yourself is that you start to observe your feelings and thoughts and you start to be aware of a distance between you and your thoughts, a space between you and your thoughts and feelings. And when you become aware of that space, the thoughts and feelings usually become less intense, less painful. You become rooted in a different identity, in kind of your essential self which is actually free of those thoughts and feelings. Thoughts and feelings are just passing by like waves on the surface of the ocean. But you are somewhere deeper just watching those waves passing by. So that gives you a sense of freedom and a sense of detachment from your emotions. And then we move on to the final stage, which is the most important of all, 
and that is acceptance. That's the point where you let go of all resistance, you surrender to the situation, uh, you accept all of the consequences of the predicament that you're in, you accept the reality completely, and you let go of all sense of conflict or duality with the situation, you embrace it completely, you become one with it. And as I said before, that's often when transformation occurs at the moment of acceptance. Right, and that often can be the most difficult thing of all to do. It is, yeah, because partly through conditioning, you know, we have this idea that we should fight, you know, if we're in a difficult situation, we should fight against it. We should fight to free ourselves from the predicament. And that has its place, you know, in some cases, but that attitude of resistance isn't conducive to transformation. Transformation only occurs when you stop resisting and you become one with your predicament. You accept it completely. And in a strange way, you become aware that the predicament isn't as negative as you thought. People always become aware that there's something positive about it. You know, they lose all sense of resistance and negativity and duality and conflict. And there's a feeling of harmony. You feel this kind of harmony with your present predicament, no matter how desperate it may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a beautiful line in the book where you say you don't really change anything. You just let go of the desire to change the situation. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you could think about that in any everyday situation. There are so many situations in our lives where we feel resistance. It could be something as simple as doing a household chore or meeting a person, you know, a member of your family who you feel resistance towards. So even the idea of doing this thing or meeting this person gives you a feeling of negativity and it creates a sense of resistance inside you. But if you make a conscious attempt to just let go of your resistance and if you embrace the situation, if you fully open yourself to it, you find that your attitude changes completely. You find that the situation or the person is nowhere near as negative as you expected. And a kind of joy or, or harmony emerges in the situation. So, you know, that household chore which you avoided may become strangely pleasant, strangely enjoyable, just through switching into a mode of acceptance. Yeah, there's an interesting kind of pleasure in the release of resistance, because I think there's a saying that resistance is suffering in itself. That's right. Yeah. There's a famous saying that it's not situations that create suffering. It's just our thoughts about situations. And that's very true. I mean, every situation is, is just like a landscape that you can view from different perspectives. So you can view a landscape in an attitude of resistance, in which case it seems ugly and chaotic. Or you can view it in an attitude of acceptance, in which case, you know, a strange beauty begins to emerge, a feeling of harmony. And that applies to any situation in our lives, even applies to pain. Sometimes physical pain can be alleviated just through an attitude of acceptance. Often when we're in pain, we feel the avoidance impulse. We, we try to push it away. We create this resistance and this feeling of fear towards the pain. But if you switch into a mode of acceptance, if you go towards the pain, if you meet the pain, open yourself to it, then it may not disappear, but it becomes somehow more neutral. It seems to dissipate somehow and become softer. Mm -hmm. And you write about what you call the three ways of applying transformation through turmoil to our own spiritual development. And we've already talked about 
the first two, which you call embracing the challenge or the turmoil, and the second one is consciously detaching, which again, we've talked about. But the third one is, is contemplating death. Could you talk about how that can be applied? That comes from my research because a lot of people underwent transformation after an encounter with death. Sometimes it was through a diagnosis of cancer. Sometimes it was through a near-death experience. Sometimes it was through, you know, an experience as a soldier when they thought they were going to die. Um, sometimes it's through addiction when they were close to death. But an encounter with death can have a massive amount of transformational potential. And I think the only reason for that really is that we become aware of the reality of death. Because often when we live our day-to-day -day lives, you know, when life is running quite smoothly and easily, we don't contemplate death and we forget about it. We kind of unconsciously assume that we're not going to die. We unconsciously assume that we're immortal. And one of the consequences of that is that we take life for granted. We take people for granted because we've kind of subconsciously assumed that they're immortal too. And you know, things like health, things like freedom, um, the other people in our lives, every aspect of our life is just taken for granted. So when we have an encounter with death, it's a, a great awakening. That's why I sometimes call death the great awakener, because everything changes. Suddenly, we stop taking things for granted. Suddenly, life becomes incredibly precious because it's so fragile and, and so temporary. Suddenly, the people in our lives become beautiful beings because we realize that they're temporary too. All of nature becomes beautiful because the earth is just temporary. So everything becomes beautiful because it's so fragile and, and temporary and so precious. And, you know, the things like people who encounter death also become very present centered because they realize that the future doesn't really exist. The past doesn't exist. The only thing that really exists is the present. So people really embrace the present. They see the beauty of the present and they begin to let go of ambitions and they no longer hold on to resentments and grudges from the past and so on. So it has a, a tremendous awakening effect. So as a result, I conclude that it's really important to cultivate an awareness of mortality in our own lives. We should remember that we are mortal beings and that life is temporary, fragile and precious. And, you know, there are a number of ways that we can do this. In Buddhism, some Buddhists practice cemetery meditations where they actually go to cemeteries to meditate amongst the, the dead bodies just to remind themselves that they are going to end up in the same situation. You know, we can also visit cemeteries. I love to visit cemeteries. They're such peaceful places. But they're a great place to contemplate mortality as well, to contemplate the fragility and preciousness of life. Every time I go to a cemetery, I feel like the dead bodies are saying to me, you know, you're only alive for a certain amount of time. So be aware of the beauty of the world. Be aware of the preciousness of life. Celebrate life and achieve your potential because you're only here for a certain amount of time. But just in a more general way, simply contemplating mortality every day and talking about it you know in the uk before the pandemic it became quite popular to hold death cafes where people would go to a cafe for one or two hours and talk about death talk about their feelings of the, about their own death and whether they believed in an afterlife so it's very important just to bring the topic of death into everyday conversation yeah it's such a deceptively beautiful practice so in this book you share lots of individual stories of awakening through turmoil. Could you talk about how this kind of awakening or transformation through turmoil could apply at a collective level for the human race as a whole? There are interesting parallels 
because as everybody knows at the moment we're going through a lot of trauma and crisis as a species um obviously the pandemic and the lockdowns around the world but also more generally ecological breakdown the climate emergency or the problems with political instability you know the movement of refugee populations and so on so in a way we are collectively in the same situation as a person who's diagnosed with cancer and maybe even as a person who's had a long period of addiction because you could say that our addiction to materialism is part of the problem in relation to the environment you know the overuse of resources and the creation of vast amounts of waste products and pollution and so forth so there are definitely parallels and you could either take it further and suggest that we are facing possible extinction as a species a possible collapse of civilization in which case it's a kind of collective death that we're facing and in my view there is a a slow process of collective awakening which is taking place in the world right now i think it's been taking place for a long time maybe even for two or three centuries but it seems to be picking up momentum over the past few decades certainly over the past two or three decades i think over the past two or three decades you know spirituality as a, as a topic of interest and a, a topic of exploration has increased exponentially you know there's also research suggesting that more people are having spiritual experiences than ever before and in my own research i certainly feel that these awakenings even though they're not i wouldn't say they're common but they're not uncommon i'm always amazed at the number of awakenings that i come across in my research and the number of people who write to me to say oh i've i've had this experience you know i didn't really understand it but now i understand that it was a spiritual awakening so i have this strong feeling that you know the momentum for collective awakening is slowly building up around the world and it could be in some way a response to the difficult predicaments we're in it could be a form of transformation through turmoil yeah i find it very interesting that lsd was created and psilocybin mushrooms were introduced to the modern world shortly after the advent of the atomic bomb and our ability to destroy ourselves and all of life in just an instant that's interesting yeah i think the 1960s you know the sort of the hippie era was a very interesting period it it was almost like a a short evolutionary shift which didn't hold but it was a kind of like a little burst of evolutionary potential there were so many interesting aspects of it you know the interest in spirituality the interest in consciousness exploration the respect for indigenous cultures the way that even the way that men adopted a more feminine style of dress you know the, the sort of gender distinctions seemed to fade away rather than this rigid idea of masculinity which is associated with patriarchy so yeah it was a very interesting evolutionary period which i think does have some real significance yeah and, and psychedelics were a part of that mhm and in the book you actually talk about these people who've had these transformational experiences and you say that they could be like harbingers of a new phase of human development or or evolution of consciousness on this planet that's right yeah i mean you can take it right back to the beginnings of evolution on this planet you know evolution has always been about the expansion of consciousness on the physical level evolution is about variation and physical complexity in life forms but in terms of the inner aspect of it the subjective aspect of evolution is about consciousness as living beings become more complex physically they also become more conscious they become more sentient they have more experience they become more aware of their surroundings and more aware of themselves and in spiritual experience the same process occurs 
people develop a more expansive awareness. They become more sentient, more inwardly alive, you could say. So spirituality is essentially a continuation of the evolutionary process. So when people undergo a shift into a more expansive awareness, into a higher functioning state, like the people in my book, it is actually, you know, part of the evolutionary process. It's a furtherance, a continuation of the evolutionary process. So in that sense, you could say that the people in my book are experiencing a new state of consciousness, which will one day become a common to the whole human race as a part of the natural unfolding of evolution. May it be so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there is definitely a movement in that direction. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. It's just a matter of whether it happens in time, considering the existential crisis that we're facing at this point. I completely agree. Yeah, it's a question of, you know, how many more decades can we continue on our present course? And how many more decades will it take for this collective awakening to manifest itself in such a powerful way that it can alleviate and heal the problems that we face? Mm -hmm. So to end, what would you say is the grand lesson in all of this? There are perhaps a couple of grand lessons. One is certainly that human beings are much more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. When our lives are running smoothly and easily, we just live on the surface of ourselves and we don't dive into ourselves to find all of the potentials that are inside us. But when crises and challenges occur, when we face turmoil and trauma, that's when we have to dive below the surface of our beings. And we find you know, these deep reserves of resilience that we never suspected. We find that we're much stronger than we ever suspected. And so, you know, I think we can all have confidence that when we are faced with life's greatest challenges, we will uncover a deep resilience inside us. And we will also experience transformation to some degree in response to those traumatic events. So, you know, we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid of trauma. We shouldn't be afraid of crises. Something inside us will respond. Resilience will arise inside us. So that's one grand lesson. And... I guess the other grand lesson is that we're all part of a greater process. You know, our own lives are not just separate and independent. We're part of this process which is unfolding beyond us. And the movement that we feel, that some of us feel towards spirituality, towards spiritual paths and practices, and the shift that some people experience in relation to trauma and turmoil, where they move into a higher functioning spiritual state. It's part of the process of evolution. It's part of the, you know, the arising of a, a new collective consciousness here on the planet. Well, Steve, it's been great to talk with you. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Me too. Yeah, it's been very interesting. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to, to discuss these things. Steve Taylor is a writer and senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the chair of the transpersonal psychology section of the British Psychological Society. He blogs for Scientific American and Psychology Today, and he's the author of many best-selling books, most recently, and the book that we've been talking about today, Extraordinary Awakenings, When Trauma Leads to Transformation. Steve, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi says, The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. I would love to kiss you. The price of kissing is your life. Now, my loving is running towards my life, shouting. What a bargain. Let's buy it. One has to be a seeker. But before becoming a seeker, one has to become a lover. You cannot become a lover if you have filled of worldly attachments. World is here in front of us to give us experiential knowledge, understanding, that it is changeable, transient entity. Laugh, sing, dance, make love, have children, create houses, money and power. And yet in a moment, death snatches everything and leaves you shivering, shaking in fear and ultimately drowning in unconsciousness. It is not possible to taste the divine wine of love if you haven't met a sheikh, a mystic. One has to become a nay, a reed flute. One has to become empty, hollow. Then all the poetry and all the music will come through you. This divine love occupies heart and mind and then all universe seems as if it is just the beloved peeping to us from behind the sun, behind the stars and moon, flowers and trees, man and woman, children and old. Once this divine love makes its roots in the heart person gets overwhelmed, drenched in this beautiful experience where the mind goes into the zone of silence. The whole universe then exhibits the divine dance of love 
one who has surrendered to the Lord is called a Sufi. And Sufi sings the Zikr. La ilaha illallah. There is no reality but God. There is only God. Zikr has three parts. The first is the denial of everything visible. Second is the explosion into the individual. And the third part is the outbreathing of divine presence. Who? Sufi sings who? That which is, that which was, that which will be. world becomes nothing more than an image stitched with the gold thread on the tapestry, just the playful addition. Drunk in love, the lover calls out in longingness to the one who resides in the heart, but still seems so far. Nobody wishes a heaven if the price is death. Nobody will wish for immortality if the cost is death. But this is what love is, death. But from this arises the resurrection of new you, pure, virgin, loveful. And now the calls of the heart get answered. Until the ego is alive, there is no possibility of love to happen. When darkness of ego is blown away with longingness, urgency, search of the truth, this becomes possible. For Jalaluddin Rumi, it happened when Shams Tabrizi arrived and stole his heart and mind. And then the love occupied this vacuum. Once someone asked Shams, whose head was full of ideas and desires, he said, Tell me about divine mystery. Shams said, I cannot tell you the mystery. I can tell this mystery only to someone in whom I can see myself. This mystery I will tell only to myself. I don't see myself in you. I see someone else. The mind has to be emptied of all attachments, greed, passion, darkness. And for this the teacher, the sheikh, has to hit lovefully until the mind is shattered. The existence of the beloved cannot be proven physically nor it is a fantasy. This presence at best have been given many many names in different cultures yet the presence remains nameless. You may call it Allah, Brahman, reality, truth or any other word because that is what best a mind can try to do give the name 
multitudinous. The Sheikh is a mirror, a reminder of that presence. Understanding of this mystery comes through the Sheikh and it transforms all the energies of the seeker. Rumi said, I have phrases and whole pages memorized, but nothing can be told of love. You must wait until you begin to live the love. Be patient, utterly patient. The journey which begins from love towards God, a moment comes in this journey when finally the union happens. All boundaries get dissolved. Then this I is no more different from that. As Al-Hillaj Mansur cried out, Anulhaq, I am that. And then total emptiness. I is no more. So who will call whom? Just a vast emptiness, which is best described by Sufis as who? That which exists. Who means that which was and will be. No word can ever contain the infinitude presence once the consciousness arises after this volcanic experience. On asking, what happened to you? Sufi says, If you can't go to sleep, my dear soul, for tonight, what do you think will happen? If you pass your night and merge it with dawn, for the sake of heart, what do you think will happen? If the entire world is covered with the blossoms, you have labored to plant. What do you think will happen?
because of your generosity and love, a few humans find their lives. What do you think will happen? If you pour an entire jar filled with joyous wine on the head of those already drunk, what do you think will happen?
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.